0: There's a verse in the Bible that's always fascinated me. It's Acts 13.36, and it goes like this. David served God's purpose in his generation, and then he died. David, King David, whose life was a mixture of heartfelt devotion to God and violent rebellion against God. The same David who defeated the giant Goliath, but who could not defeat the giant of his own pride, and his own lust, and his own need to stay in power. The the same David who wrote beautiful prayers in the book of Psalms, but who also wrote a death warrant for an innocent soldier to cover up his own sin. That David served God's purpose in his generation. What might it mean for you and I to serve God's purpose in our lifetime? Back in 2002, Pastor Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, tried to answer that question in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. And although the book wasn't without its critics, Warren's book spent 90 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and sold over 18 million copies. A lot of people want to know, how to serve God's purpose in their generation. Warren described God's purpose in our lives under a couple of categories of, of worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and mission. And, and those are great insofar as they go. They sound a lot like our mission statement here at Glenkirk. But what if God's purpose is even bigger than that? We've been in a series through the 8th chapter of Romans called Life in the Spirit, and we've seen that when we trust in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us as Christians, filling us with God's presence the way God filled His temple in the Old Testament. And not only that, but through the Spirit, we are adopted into God's family as His children, as His daughters and sons. In fact, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the down payment of our inheritance in this family of God. And we've seen that when we're confused about how to pray or what to pray for or what God is doing, that the Spirit living within us groans in prayer like a mother in labor, interceding for us according to the will of God. And today we're going to see how the Spirit helps us to live in a way that we might fulfill God's purpose in our lifetime. Out of Romans 8, 28 through 30. And so I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today? We're going to look just at three verses. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good Romans 8, 28 is one of the most well-loved verses in the Bible. So let's look a little deeper. Let's start with that phrase, we know. We know. There are a lot of things in life that we don't know. Earlier in Romans 8, we, we learned that sometimes we don't even know what to pray for or how to pray. We don't always know what God is doing in our lives or what God wants us to do in certain situations. But this is one thing Paul says we can know. Now, the King James Version translates it this way. We know that all things work together for good. And that could give the impression that Paul is saying that everything works out just fine in the end. But Paul is not saying everything eventually works out fine in the end. The New International Version, the, the translation I've used this morning, it is more accurate to the Greek text here. In all things, God works for the good. Paul is not saying that everything works out in the end. He's saying that God is working in everything. There's a difference. Now, a lot of things happen to us over a lifetime. Some are good things. Job promotions, new opportunities, babies born, weddings. I have one in uh, four weeks from today, first of my kids getting married. Um, Healthy families, a great church, good friendships, and on and on it goes of the good things that happen. But some are bad things, like a cancer diagnosis, a layoff, a divorce, war, the death of someone we care about, domestic abuse, being treated unjustly, a church split, a broken relationship. Paul is not saying here that bad things are really good things. He's saying that God is working for our good, in all things, the good and the bad. Bible scholar Brendan Brine says that the good things here are the full realization of our salvation and of God's purposes for our lives. In every situation we go through, God is at work to contribute towards our final participation in God's grand purpose, even in the hard things even in the things that break the heart of God that happen. When I read this verse, I'm reminded of a verse we saw in Genesis earlier this year when we did our study in the life of Joseph. After all Joseph's brothers had put him through, near the end of Joseph's life, he says this in Genesis 50 verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. No bad thing that happens to you is so powerful that it can prevent God from working for our good, for the fulfillment of God's plan. But this promise has an important condition attached to it. It's only true for people who love God who have been called according to God's purpose. And there's that word again, purpose. Lovers of God, who God has called according to His purpose, can know for sure that God is working for their good in all things. Through the Holy Spirit, God is working in every situation to achieve His purpose. God is working in every situation that we go through, through His Spirit, To achieve his purpose. The the, the term for this is God's providence. And we, we explored that idea at length in our series in Genesis earlier this year. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit living within us, we can know that God is providentially working in every situation we face. We may not be able to see where God is working. We may not be able to put into words what God is doing or how God is working. But because of the Spirit's presence within us, we can know that God indeed is working in each and every situation we face. You might picture the things that happen in your life as like the ingredients of a cake. Some cake ingredients taste pretty good on their own. Sugar, milk, if you like milk. But other cake cake ingredients taste pretty bad on their own, like who likes the taste of baking powder or flour or raw eggs? The ingredients that taste good are like the good things that happen in our lives. And the ingredients that taste bad are like the bad things that happen in our lives. But a master baker who mixes all the ingredients together in just the right proportion and then cooks them at just the right temperature for just the right amount of time can cause all of those ingredients, the ones that taste good and the ones that taste bad on their own, to produce a delicious dessert, a cake. The ingredients that taste good and the ingredients that taste bad all contribute something to the final product. And that's what God is doing in your life and in my life. And, of course, that raises the question, what is God's purpose then? If we're called according to this purpose, what is it? If this promise is only true for people who love him and are called according to the purposes of God, what exactly is that purpose? And some people think God's purpose is to save as many souls as possible before he destroys this world. Other people think that God's purpose is to build a really big church with a famous pastor who writes lots of books and the church has a lot of money and a huge building and multitudes of people. Other people think that God's purpose is for Christians to gain as much influence in society as they can so they can control what happens in society. But what exactly is the purpose of God? Well, earlier in Romans 8, Paul gave us a hint. In Romans 8, 19 through 20, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's us, the family of God. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God's ultimate purpose is to free creation from the deadly effects of sin and evil and death. When Jesus comes again, Jesus will judge what's evil and transform his creation into new creation. God wants all creation to experience the same kind of freedom that we Christians are already experiencing through our faith in Jesus. And in case you think that this is, Paul only said this once, he says something very similar in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says this, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed, there's that word again, purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's purpose is to bring everything in creation together in unity under the lordship of Jesus. To bring together what's been torn and ripped apart by sin and hatred and evil and to reassemble it, to put it all in its proper order so it finds its rightful place under the lordship of Jesus He says the the same kind of thing in Colossians. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The world as it currently exists, exists in a state of hostility to God, A hostility that needs reconciliation that has to be made right. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to shed his blood on the cross, not only to reconcile you and I to God when we trust in Jesus, but ultimately one day to reconcile all of creation. God's purpose is much bigger than saving souls or building a big church. Or influencing society. It's to redeem creation, to redeem and restore all that he made in Genesis chapter 1. And we as God's children, his family, his church, are the beginning of that new creation as it dawns. We are the start of that transformation. If we follow Jesus, if we love God, we have been called according to this purpose. And we can be sure, we can know that the Spirit of God is working in every situation we go through to achieve this purpose. And that brings us to verses 29 and 30. If Romans eight twenty eight is one of the most well-loved verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 29, and 30 are among the most debated verses in the Bible Words like forenew and predestined have led to all kinds of debates and theology books being written. Some have called these two verses the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain, because each of the five verbs in these two verses are like links in a chain that picture the whole sweep of creation from from beginning to end, from Genesis one one to Revelation twenty one. And all five of these verbs focus on what God does to achieve his purpose. But we should not conclude that this focus on what God does somehow cancels out what we do in response to what God does. These verbs remind us that God is the initiator of his purpose. It's his purpose. It's not ours. It's not the church's. It doesn't belong to us. It all starts with God. But um, Bible scholar N.T. Wright in his commentary on Romans points out that this does not mean that we are passive in God's purpose. Wright says that when we read these verses and we see these five verbs, we, we often make the mistake of looking at them um, two-dimensionally as if the fact that God does these things means that we must do nothing. But Wright says we need to look at these verbs three-dimensionally, that it can be simultaneously true that God is doing these things and that we are doing something as well. Now, breaking into stages, God's purpose, can feel a little artificial. N.T. Wright says it would be like, like someone who's just fallen in love Meeting with a psychologist who then breaks down all the psychological processes and stages of falling in love into analyzed stages. Those stages may be true, but no one experiences falling in love that way. And we don't really experience our salvation this way either. But let's dive into this golden chain, these five verbs. God's foreknowledge refers to God knowing us and loving us before he created us. God knew us and loved us. Before he created us. In the Bible, foreknowledge is more than God knowing in advance what's going to happen. The word know implies a relationship. It implies uh, uh, an affection and a care. God knew us and loved us before he made us. Predestined describes God choosing us in Christ before we chose him. But again, that doesn't mean we have no choice. That would be the two-dimensional way that Wright warns about instead of a three-dimensional way of reading this text. Predestined simply means it starts with God, not with us. And Paul refuses to speculate here. Does this mean that, that God rejects some people? He, he doesn't go there, and so we shouldn't go there in our speculation either. Those who've been called into God's purpose can be sure that God initiated That relationship before they even responded, before we even heard about Jesus, God was at work. God's call refers to us bringing us into His family at a point in time when we respond to Jesus by faith. If we believe in Jesus, we can be sure that we've been called. We don't have to doubt it or question it or wonder about it. God's justifying us refers to God removing the guilt of our sins. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, our sins are forgiven when we believe in Jesus. And finally, glorified means God finishing his work by perfecting us and ultimately one day raising our bodies from the dead. And even though this is written in the past tense, he also glorified, this work is still ongoing because we're not perfect yet, if you hadn't noticed that about yourself. And our bodies haven't been resurrected yet, in case you hadn't noticed that about yourself. But as the final link in the chain, our glorification is so sure, so certain, that Paul can actually write about it in the past tense as if it's a done deal. Now, in verse 29, under the the verb predestined, Paul tells us the ultimate goal of these, these five actions in this golden chain. And part of it is our own spiritual formation that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I I defined spiritual formation from a, a book by Robert Mulholland, that spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus for the sake of others. As part of our process, this glorification process, we all go through a formational experience where our minds are being renewed, where the passions of our hearts are being reordered and healed, where the priorities of our lives are being reset, where the habits of our our lives are being changed. Every Christian is in this process of spiritual formation, and some of you are new to this journey of spiritual formation. Some of you have been in it a long time, and some of you are a little stuck, and it's time for the Spirit of God to give you a healthy nudge to, to get growing again. But the other part of this goal is communal, focusing on the family of God, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. That's the the family of God. The church is this family that we're related to as brothers and sisters, that we were predestined with this goal that Jesus might be preeminent in this family that you and I have been adopted into through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, God is transforming us together for his purpose. God is transforming us together for his purpose. God's eventual transformation of all creation is dependent upon our transformation together. He's transforming us individually in our own spiritual formation and communally, together as a church, as a congregation, as part of his family. And if we want to serve God's purpose in our lifetime, we need both. We can't just isolate ourselves into our homes, focusing on our own spiritual formation, but ignoring God's family. But we also can't just throw ourselves into God's family and ignore our own personal spiritual formation. I think of no better example of this than the questions we asked our covenant partners today. In those questions we asked each covenant partner and asked you, there was both the communal and the personal spiritual formation. When we only focus on our own spiritual formation, we become individualistic and isolated. But when we only focus on the church, we become shallow, oblivious to our blind spots, The areas God still wants us to grow. We need both. The very first line from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, goes like this It's not about you. We live in a culture where we're constantly tempted to make it about ourselves, but it's not. It's about God and his purposes. And God loves us, yes. In fact, we've seen the amazing lengths to which God has gone to to love us, that he loves us more than we ever could have imagined. He loved us before he even created us or made us. But God's purpose isn't just about us. It's bigger, grander, larger, more beautiful because it's to redeem and remake his entire creation, transforming it. And although it's not about us, we have a part to play. We are the beginning of the new creation. The sign and the foretaste that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, everything changed. The future is breaking into the present. And the Spirit of God's work in our lives is essential. Because through the Spirit, we can know that God is working in everything that happens to achieve God's purpose, even the hard things. And through the Spirit, God is transforming us together for his purposes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these familiar words from your your book, from your scriptures. And Lord, thank you for the assurance that they give that we are part of something so much bigger, so much grander, so much larger than ourselves. Lord, may we find ourselves, our meaning, our sense of direction, our identity, our joy, our hope within your purpose. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.